0: Come seek the Royal
2: Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas.
1: Over seven million different animals inhabit our planet. They now know these snowshoe hares have about about a 10-year cycle. We'll just call it a 10-year cycle. That's 8 to 11 years, right? What can they teach us?
2: A female snowshoe hare. Is pregnant with a litter. Well, she can actually conceive her second litter while she is still pregnant with the first.
1: Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement
2: at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All
1: Creatures Podcast.
2: This is Chris. And I'm Angie.
1: Another fun winter animal. And we debated about which one to cover.
2: I know. There's so many good ones. And so I'm super excited that we picked the snowshoe hare. Uh, I believe this is our first lagomorph, right? Our first rabbit or no, hare? No,
1: no. We got to go oh. back a little bit. We got to <laughs> go back a little bit. Sorry.
2: No, Hashtag I, mom brain. No, it's been like a, a, a
1: good couple of years, almost 200 episodes ago.
2: Oh, remember, okay. Fair remember enough. Remember
1: that one photo that just looked like you couldn't even believe that animal was real?
2: Oh, the pica. Yeah, the illy pica, right? Illy pika. Yes. <laughs> I guess I don't – I didn't have that as a rabbit in my mm-hmm, in, mm-hmm. Uh, in my radar, but it, it technically is, I, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's a lagomorph, But it, this is our first rabbit or hare. Okay. So. There we go. And now I want to cover more of them after doing the research. I know. Yeah.
2: Oh, my goodness. Uh, it's, been, it's been so fun. But so much fun physiology to talk about today with the snowshoe hair. Uh, I mean, just their coat adaptations. Mm-hmm. I had like 10 slides on. Just kidding. I have four. But I'll talk about it real <laughs> fast for yeah. those of you that aren't interested into hair color physiology. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited to dork out a little bit about the uh, rabbit reproductive tract. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Always a fun one, and just in general, Chris, doing the research this week, I didn't realize that several uh, rabbit species are in danger of extinction.
1: I know you wouldn't think, right? You, yeah, you, you so we're
2: gonna it? we're gonna of course focus today on the snowshoe hare because of their amazing color and those feet. Oh, we're gonna talk a lot about those feet uh, that act like snowshoes, but yeah, we'll touch on some of the other endangered and critically endangered species of rabbits. Hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it. They've been on our radar. We we were debating this with the Arctic hair. So maybe next year we'll we'll cover the Arctic hair and talk about the differences between the two. But also, we wanted to highlight that we have an interview this week coming out. It, it's Mark Hawthorne. He's an author, way of the rabbit, a rabbit expert. I spent a good hour with him talking about the history of rabbits, the cultural importance of rabbits. You know, the stories the more you realize it's not just the Easter bunny that many of us around the, around the world celebrate uh, during the Easter holiday, but they're weaved into many, many cultures. It is a fascinating interview. So look for that this week. Now, before we get rolling, I just want to say thank you to our Patreon supporters. I was thinking about it this week and thank you so much. It, It just, it shows us support. It keeps me and Angie going, keeps us motivated We've been doing this podcast now for well over three years, and it is our hobby. We love it. We love learning. Passion
2: project. It is.
1: It is. <laughs> and we're definitely not getting rich on it at all. But <laughs> no. it's just our Patreon supporters. Thank you. Again, it's like one Starbucks coffee a month, supports us, supports conservation. So we've got a lot of big things that we want to try to accomplish for this podcast next year, you know, to keep growing. But I just I just want to say thank you. You know, as we end out this year in December twenty twenty one, we're all going through this horrific pandemic together, all of us, humanity. But to the Patreon supporters, I just thank you for the bottom of my heart.
2: Yes, thank you so much for making it all possible. And please know that Chris and I will be adding some new material for Patreon supporters. Uh, we can even put other species out there if you'd like. So just let us know. We love hearing uh, from you with emails or social media posts. So the more feedback we get, the more you shall receive.
1: Angie, when I first looked at the the snowshoe hare, and, and here in a minute we'll talk about the difference between hare's and rabbits, because there, there definitely is some, uh, not only behavioral differences, but some physiology differences. Still, looking at the snowshoe hair, it just looks like, a, to me, it's a it's a beautiful rabbit slash hair. It's just, it's gorgeous.
2: Well, yes. I mean, it gets its name from the feet. The feet are very striking. In fact, the photo that I have on my show notes is of a snowshoe hair in their winter coat. So they're mostly white. And in the photo, the rabbit has one of its hind feet pushed forward and it's grooming its toes. And this giant white hind foot, Chris, is way larger than the hare's head. And so that's kind of the iconic classic picture of the snowshoe hare is white blending in with the snow and then these humongous hind feet. And, of course, that's where they get their name, snowshoes. And we'll be talking a lot about the physiology of these big hind feet. But a more specific description of the snowshoe hair, of course, includes this winter fur, which is almost entirely white, except for uh, a little bit of black around their eyes and then uh, black around the tips of their ears. But we have to include their summer coat. Because they look like a completely different rabbit in the Mm -hmm, summer. mm -hmm. And we're going to talk a lot about that today when we get to physiology. And in the summer, their coat is a grayish brown, um, almost like maybe a little bit of a rusty color to it uh, with creamy underbelly and flanks. And then the face and legs are also this like cinnamon brown, grayish brown color. So a completely different rabbit side by side. They look night and day with these, these molts or these color changes in their coat. But year round, it's important to know that the snowshoe hair is going to have these fringes of black fur um, on their ears, which are super adorable. And also their underside and their flanks are going to be this white, creamy, buff color throughout the year as well. But overall, just an adorable hair uh, with uh, their ears are shorter than the domestic rabbits that we're probably used to. And I know Chris will talk about that when we touch on the differences between rabbits and hares. But I like their short little ears. And I, like I said, I like the little black high points on their winter molt or their white fur. And just these feet are just striking. Like I said, uh, the picture that I have of the snowshoe hare grooming their hind foot it's just this this humongous Mm -hmm. paw. Mm -hmm. It's just incredible. incredible. It is.
1: It really is. I mean, they, so body length, 16 to 20 inches. So just under two feet or 50 centimeters, their tails, you know, up to two inches or five centimeters. And you said those ears are are smaller than darling. They're very, I know. And I will talk about jackrabbits here in a little while, but their ears are only, you know, up to three inches long or seven centimeters but those feet, those hind feet, can grow up to five inches or fourteen centimeters.
0: Right, that's what so, I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah,
1: easily a quarter of the size of their body. I mean, it, it, just massive. And they only weigh about three and a half pounds or one and a half kilograms. So they're they're not huge, but again, not small. Now, snowshoe hares are are found in North America throughout Canada and the northernmost United States. And that the range is really interesting because they do get down into the Sierras Mountains, which is California.
2: Right, Chris. Looking yeah. at the distribution map, that yeah. also blew me away. Yeah. I didn't realize that they were northern Michigan. That's yeah. my home state of Michigan. Uh, so not in the region that I lived in in southwestern Michigan growing up, but still in Michigan. And then I didn't really realize that they were like in New England, where my husband John's from. Mm-hmm. And then they uh, dropped down in the Appalachia area.
1: Yes, all the way down to northern Georgia, almost.
2: I crazy. So I had a, this yeah. is why this podcast is so fun. Like, I, I mean, if, if I did trivia before I did all this research, people would be like, "Wow, she does not know what she's talking about." <laughs>
1: Well, and then, I mean, but even then in the Rocky Mountains, they, they stretch all the way down into Northern New Mexico. Yeah. So in the United States, that's the Southern more of the lower 48, that's the Southern more part. So they do extend, you know, down these mountain ranges because they, you know, they prefer the boreal forests, but you know, dent shrub, pine, spruce trees, those are the things. So they're doing pretty well and, and like pretty much throughout Canada and Alaska now, the Arctic hare is in the Arctic, which is just north. I mean, there's some overlap there with the Arctic hares. But, you know, that snowshoe hare really, really is is has a good range across North America. Now, some differences between hares and rabbits. Again, something I didn't really know. I knew there was differences. But, you know, looking at this, uh, I thought it was kind of interesting. Now, baby hares are called leverets. I love and, that. Yeah. And, and I know, you know, you, you'll probably talk about this, maybe in a little reproduction, but when they're born, they're just like, they, they say they're like mini versions of their parents.
2: They are ready to go. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Their eyes are open. They can start hopping around. They're fully furred within an hour or two after birth. They can almost live on their own, but they're weaned within very quickly, right? Within a few weeks.
2: Yes, yeah, and the term for being born ready to go, to hop off, or looking just like a miniature adult is uh, precocial.
1: Right. Whereas rabbits are called kits or kittens, they're blind, they're totally helpless, they're hairless, and they need need mom for at least two months, for about eight weeks. So there's a big difference.
2: Right, and that term is called
1: altricial. Yeah, so precocial and altricial. But you, yeah, you, you've said that in, a, in quite a few podcasts. Now, hares are generally bigger than rabbits and generally have longer ears and legs. Now, the snowshoe hare, I think, looks more like a rabbit, but that's just me. Hares are faster run- runners because they tend to live in more open spaces in the prairies and they need to outrun predators. Where rabbits actually like to, to, to live in dens and more bushy areas. I mean, the, the rabbit Warren system I, I read can be up to 100 to 150 feet long. Where hares live above ground and find you know shelter in logs and shrubs and simple nests. Where rabbits are burrowing, get underground. Uh, rabbits are most so, more social than hares, which Angie will talk about in behavior. You know Because hares are generally solitary. Just some of the differences, and obviously there, when I get to evolution, there's some little bit differences there too. So there, there definitely is a difference between a hare and a rabbit.
2: Well, yeah, Chris, and I was reading that another distinction between rabbits and hares is that rabbits do not change colors or have this summer and winter molt. Oh,
1: okay. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, okay, okay. Where the hares do. So you have the Arctic hare, the snowshoe hare, probably some mm-hmm. others. Now, talking about the ecological importance of rabbits and hares, this one – These are some critical animals to our ecosystems. Most of them. Now we know in Australia, in the wombat episode, we talked about how rabbits were very disruptive to the ecosystem in here in New Zealand, but in their native ranges, Angie, these are very important animals, like super important to the food, food web.
2: Absolutely. Chris, Uh, these snowshoe hares, really any hare or rabbit in their ecosystem have an important role in the food web in their ecosystem as a prey animal. This is a role that Chris and I have talked about a lot before with small mammals, especially herbivores, as a prey animal for larger predators. But this isn't just wordplay because the snowshoe hare has several years of documentation about how its density and stocking levels affect the predators like the Canadian lynx and it's so fascinating to read these studies and seeing just how critical of a role they play because when there's not a lot of them the food web food chain is off and the populations of the Canadian lynx and other large predators can crash and when there's a lot of them well that means that the predators are doing better and there's more of them. So the snowshoe hare, among other rabbits and hares, is a key factor in whether or not the ecosystem is running well or it's not.
1: I'm glad you brought that up because I, I did read that study and I know we shared it, was the the snowshoe hare and the Canadian lynx, how they're linked and and why it is so important uh to really stay focused on these animals. It even goes back to the interview. We, I know we mentioned it last week or the week before with Dr. John uh, Vulisic where the the predator prey relationship with wolves and moose.
2: Right. That's Isle. another classic one that's been studied. Right.
1: And so looking at snowshoe hare and Canadian lynx, the snowshoe hare, which is great because last week we did the Eurasian, Eurasian lynx. And now we can kind of tie it in with this animal with the Canadian lynx. But the snowshoe hare is their primary food source. So when the hares are populations are up, the lynx eat little, little else. They take about two hares every three days is what the uh, researchers are finding. Now, lynx will, you know, eat other things, squirrels, mice, other things they can get, even some carrion. But they, they say only the snowshoe hare can help the Canadian lynx meet its nutritional needs. That's a really powerful statement. Yes. It is that dependent on these animals Mm -hmm. because they need those hairs to build up the fat reserves to survive the harsh winters in what we know where you grew up in Michigan and north – they you know these canadian lynx need to be a little bit chunky i guess going into winter like bears to survive i
2: love sweater season up north (laughs) it's very gracious up there i miss that Uh, i look for any excuse to wear them in florida where i live now and it's there's not as many unfortunately
1: (laughs) well it, it it gets even when you read it and you read the science behind it it gets even deeper where they now know these snowshoe hares have about an About a 10-year cycle. We'll just call it a 10-year cycle. That's easiest. Eight to 11
2: years, right? And it should be noted that it's considered a density cycle. That's the technical term for it.
1: No, right? And so at the peak of this cycle, they estimate there's about 1,500 hares per kilometer. But the habitat can't support that many animals. And what that means is there's too many hares. There's not enough food for them. So their population is going to go down. But what the researchers know is when the hare population goes up, the Canadian lynx population goes up. So, as that hare population starts to decrease because there's not enough food to support the hares, then the Canadian lynx population starts to decrease. Then the hare population crashes, Canadian lynx crash, that allows the plants to, to come back up. And start the cycle all over again. As the plants become more dense, the hairs become more dense. It's almost like a lag. Plants are first, hairs are second, links are third. Plants crash, hairs crash, links crash, and there's that cycle. It's it, it's just cyclical every about every ten years. So I thought that was just amazing where we had two species, a, a prey species and a predator, so closely linked. Now, what makes this even more complex is the effect climate change is having on these animals, especially in the northern latitudes and the extreme southern latitudes. We've talked about the data on numerous podcasts that the poles are are warming up quicker than the equator. So that's where we're seeing problems with polar bears, walrus, all these other animals. Well, here's a study showing climate change is having a direct effect on snowshoe hares. And I really read this study. I found it really fascinating. It was an ecology letters published in 2016 as Zamova and others. And it was high fitness costs of climate change induced camouflage mismatch. So what we've said in the beginning of this podcast is as going into winter, the snowshoe hare molts and goes white in color. And that helps them blend in with the snow. Mm -hmm. As the snow starts to melt, the hairs start to change and they start to darken and then they get that that brown spotted mottled coat, right? Now that's linked and Angie's going to explain that here in a second. So I think it's linked to to day length. So what this study was looking at was with climate change, how is that affecting snowshoe hair survival and populations? Because snow is falling later and it's clearing earlier in the spring. So you'll lose snow cover earlier in the year and you have these white hairs standing out. And they said, to quote them directly, if their camouflage becomes mismatched with their surroundings, the hairs stand out like light bulbs against a dark background and are predicted to be at a higher risk of predation. So we know climate change is happening which is great we it's no longer really debatable as much it's now i think the debate in the media and going in the last couple of years is what can we do about it uh, i think most people around the planet now realize climate change is real we have to tackle it and and here in this study we see an effect direct effect on a species the snowshoe hare Before we we go any further in the study, Angie, I think it would be really good to kind of explain the hair molt here, like what drives it? Because when you understand that process, then I think you can link it together with climate change, with later snowfall, and then
2: the earlier clearing of the snow. Oh, yes, Chris. I have been chomping at the bit to talk about uh, the fur molt and color change in these snowshoe hairs since we started this podcast because it's so... Interesting to me, and you broke it down. Of course, that basically this color molt from the brownish color in the summer to the winter white color is critical for camouflage. Right, snow in the winter time they're white. No snow in the summertime, for the most part, they are brownish in color and they blend in, and they are are more likely to evade predators. And Chris, what I learned when I was researching this is that there's about 28 species of vertebrates. Uh, that have this seasonal molt that basically takes their brownish color in the summertime to a whiter coat in the wintertime to help them camouflage in the snow. So this issue of climate change that you're talking about is not just going to have to do deal with, it's not just going to uh, impact the snowshoe hare, it's going to impact 19 other uh, mammal species. So really fascinating stuff. But what we do know about this seasonal molten color change is it basically stems from predictable seasonal cues, which are associated with day length. So that's how many hours of sun there are in and day. And if you're in the Northern hemisphere, of course, in the winter time, it gets darker sooner. And so there's less hours of daylight. And then as we move into spring and summer, There's more hours of sunlight and the days are quote unquote longer. So this change in color primarily is triggered by photo period. There are other environmental factors that also act as external stimuli to help cue this change and they're thought to include temperature and the presence or not of snow. But of course, Chris, I couldn't stop there. I I wanted to understand a little bit more about the hair color change itself. So it's triggered by photo period. It might have to do a little bit with temperature and the presence or not of snow. But what is actually happening in the hair follicle? And so, looking back at the rec- records, I'm not the only one that was interested in this. In fact, in fact, there's this. Awesome scientifical historical debate or great debate about how the snowshoe hair changes color when it's molting. So for the past couple hundred years, there were several different theories about how snowshoe hairs changed colors. There was the thought that maybe it wasn't the hair that was changing, but in fact, a new type of hair grew in in the wintertime that was white and longer to basically quote unquote, cover up the Brown. Other researchers believed that the white color that came in the winter was maybe actually the Brown hair being bleached by the sun. Uh, (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) I know. And then other researchers argued that the hair follicle in the wintertime during the winter months was actually becoming damaged and like shriveling up and that then resulted in white hair. So those, those were a lot of the theories that were thrown out there even, uh, cause one of the researchers noticed under a microscope, uh, probably in the late 1800s, early 1900s, that the white hairs had like what looked to be like little air bubbles in them. So just all these fun pieces and parts of the puzzle But now with a little bit more modern day technology, the mechanisms of hair color is more understood. And the brief physiology lesson with hair color is that whether a hair is brown or white in the snowshoe hairs example, or red or black or brown um, in the human example, or gray, it all has to do with the pigment melanin. And generally speaking, this melanin that's found in the hair follicles, if there's more of it present, the hair is a darker color. If there's less melanin present, the hair is going to be a lighter color. Now, there's two different types of melanin. Some of them have more of a blackish-brown pigment to them, and then some of them have more of a yellow or red. So the tone of your hair color... Uh, it's basically decided by how much melanin is present present in the follicle, and what's the ratio of the two different types of melanin that's present. And of course, as we know, and at least for us humans, and even in the um, and in the animal kingdom, as far as fur goes or coat color goes, there's several different shades of brown and blonde and gray and tan and blacks. And of course, as we know, with several different species of animals and humans as well, is uh, there can be some follicles that make one type of color in an area, and some follicles of hair that make another type of color. If you just think of a Dalmatian dog, right, or an Appaloosa horse that have that are known for their spots, or a leopard, right. But the scientists from the 18, late 1800s that was looking at a snowshoe hare's white. Hair under a uh, microscope and saw these air bubbles was actually correct. What ends up happening is during the winter when the white hairs are um, are present, they're actually not white. Uh, I think we talked about this a little bit in polar bear mm-hmm. episode. Do you remember mm-hmm. that, Chris? Yeah,
1: we did. We did.
2: They're more clear, mm-hmm. and what happens is the light is basically scattered or bounces all around and it reflects back to us as white. So, <laughs> it's yeah, just be. just amazing, right? Amazing yeah. stuff. And uh, these white hairs do trap air in them. And so as an extra adaptation to the cold weather for the snowshoe hair, these hair and hair follicles act as extra insulation because they have these, some of these air bubbles trapped in them. So the scientist was right when he saw that, right? But um, not necessarily his, uh, some of the other theories were off. And then just to point out that I'm not a super dork by using another dorky science study to prove that, (laughs) I'm I'm not the only one who cares about this stuff. It's super fascinating. And I just found a study from February 2020 by uh, Fiera and et al out of, um, ecology and evolution called the transcriptomic regulation of seasonal coat changes in hairs. And this group of researchers took it to the next level and they wanted to explore what genes are involved in regulating these color changes in the snowshoe hair. And of course, we know it has to do with the circadian clock and melatonin pr- um, production within the hair follicle, but they also hypothesize hypothesize it has to do with the growth cycle and um, perhaps melanogenesis or the creation of um, the melanin pigment. And so these researchers study the transcriptome, which is just a fancy word for the RNA molecules that help build proteins. And they basically found that there were over 632 differently expressed genes uh, between the brown or the early molt, the intermediate molt, and the white or the late molt. And these 632 different genes had to do with pigmentation, circadian clock, and, a, and also b- behavioral regulation. As we pointed out earlier in the podcast, it, it, photo photoperiod has a lot to do with it, right? The circadian clock uh, and the day length, but there are several other environmental and or biological cues that are happening to have this rabbit change color halfway through the year
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: this episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe dive into the western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from prada you can shop for everything on your agenda
1: No, I mean it, 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 how they do it, it. It is fascinating, and that physiology. I mean that that's that's a gist of this podcast. I think that's a big big part of it with the species, right?
2: Well, I want to know how we can get gray hair to turn back color. (laughs) No
1: kidding. (laughs) My kids keep giving me gray hair. (sighs) Take kids.
2: So that might be, maybe that's what these researchers are really after. Like, hmm, if we can figure out what genes are involved. But of course it's not simple. It's like 632 different genes Uh, 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 or gene expression, I should say. Uh, But yeah, just really, you know, really fascinating stuff. And nothing is is as simple as, uh, oh, it's just this or just that. But it all backs up the point that you made before I got on the soapbox of um, the snowshoe hare's uh, molting color change, and the fact that climate change, without a doubt, is going to impact this snowshoe hare in several different ways. But, but potentially in the way that they maybe even molt, uh, depending mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. Oh, the well, snow, yeah. uh, depending on the amount of snow, um, the temperature all of these things and what just blows my mind I know you'll talk about an evolution is like phenological right like they look like a totally different rabbit adaptation to survive over a millennia and now we're just yeah I mean over messing that up or yeah, playing you know thousands, yeah, thousands it's crazy
1: well and that's what this this study to to bring it back home you know with snow falling later in the year and then melting earlier in the year. So there's less time period of snow on the ground. Right. And so that's what this study was, was, was particularly looking at was their survival rates. Because when you have a white hair against a dark background, like they said, it just stands right out. Of course. And that's basically the concern. And what this study did find is, is over many years, the plasticity And when they say plasticity, they're meaning the ability to adapt, right? The ability of these hairs to adapt to the change in the climate. They said in the spring, there are some shifts in phenology. So some of these hairs are able to start getting a darker coat earlier, but definitely in the fall, it looks like it's fixed. Like as soon as it starts cooling off, as soon as the days start getting shorter, uh, it's again that circadian rhythm I, I think daylight plays a big role in it it's fixed and they start turning white and with the snowshoe hare their mortality 85 to 100 percent in some areas of their mortality is predator related they get picked off you know even if there's not enough food for them that just means they're weaker they don't have the ability to escape a predator they all mostly die by predation now, let me just get to the end of this so we can move on. What they have found is with the, the predictions in this mismatch, the, by the end of the century with climate models the way they are right now, that today there's like a nine-day mismatch where the snow and the coats don't match. They expect that to go anywhere from 40 to 68 days where for two months of the year almost, or just over two months of the year, you will have white rabbits with a dark background. And also what we know with these rabbits is they do not adapt their anti-predator behavior when their coats are mismatched. So they they aren't more aware or anything. They're just a white rabbit running around in, in, with no snow on the ground, and they don't change how they react to it. So they definitely are predicting a, a, a upwards of 23% decrease in survival rates of the snowshoe hare by the end of the century. So almost a quarter of the population probably decrease. And so now you can tie this all together. You can only imagine how that's going to affect the Canadian lynx and then all these other species that are woven in this complex food web.
2: Right, Chris. It's just crazy. And I mean, I think that this transcriptome study of seeing what what genes regulate the seasonal coat color change goes to show that it's not just like one epigenetic on-off switch or something like that, where they can just adapt super easily to what's happening with the snowpack or their background. Like 632 differently expressed genes... That involves several different pathways in pigmentation, circadian rhythm, behavioral regulation. I mean, and Chris, we could be here in real time watching this catastrophic decline of these snowshoe hares and the 19 other vertebrate species that do this similar uh, summer and winter brown to white uh, coat change as well. Oh, yeah, we're
1: seeing it in in, in real time. You know, we just talk about the decrease in bird populations, the massive decrease in biomass. It's everywhere. So climate change, that's why it's always part of our discussion every month, it seems like, with the species. It's having massive impacts across all taxa. Now, jumping into evolution, again, it's a little late because we, we, we put a little physiology up ahead just so we can kind of talk about this coat color change and how that happens. So just just to sum up evolution in lagomorphs, the order is lagomorpha. So that's about 109 species. Mm -hmm. So you have 34 species of pica, 42 species of rabbit, and 33 species of hares. Now that's the order. Now you get into the family. The family is leporidae. That's rabbits and hares. Now the genus is lepus. So that's hares and jackrabbits. So I want to cover a jackrabbit at some point because
2: that will be fun. Then that'll yeah. be the opposite adaptation spectrum, yes. right? <laughs> yes,
1: yes. You know, desert loving for a lot of them. The jackrabbits were named because of their ears, because they looked like jackasses or donkeys with mm-hmm. very, very long ears. So they're referred to as jackass rabbits or jackrabbits. So we definitely got to cover them at some point. That they're, they're beautiful, amazing creatures so with the hares and jackrabbits there's about 14 or yeah uh 33 species now in the snowshoe hare the species name is Lepus americanus but there's 14 subspecies within that don't need to go through them all but you know that you got species in central canada british columbia washington state oregon california Another subspecies just in Oregon, Wyoming, uh, Nevada, you know, all the states, uh, the ones that go down the Appalachias, just north of Angie. So all of those subspecies are in there. Now talk about ligomorph evolution. Don't know a lot about it, but we do know is there's a very, very distant relationship with rodents, but they're not that close. You know, rodents and, and the lagomorphs emerged about 55 million years ago, and they're linked to the order of Anagaladia. So that's our rodents, elephant shrews, and lagomorphs. Now, around 34 million years ago is when lagomorphs emerged in Asia in Asia. There was a hypothesis, it was a part of India. Um, but again, we we don't know a lot about it. But they spread relatively quickly which we see, you know, rabbits and and hares do really well. The pikas emerged about 25 million years ago in East Asia. Now, during about 20, 25 million years ago, rabbits entered North America. This is where you got a lot of change, a lot of their evolution. They disappeared from Asia and Europe, but then they reappeared about 7 million years ago. Now, hares and rabbits diverged about one to one and a half million years ago. And again, the hares preferred prairies, more open areas where rabbits were more in the forest. Now, we know the snowshoe hare is a little bit different, but the other types of hares do that. Now, we find rabbits and hares on every continent except Antarctica. And then remember, Australia, they were introduced as a pest. And actually, in Mark's interview, we talk about that a little bit about how, when they were introduced to, to Australia in the 1800s. And then just really quick, I was going to touch upon domestication, but listen to the interview with Mark Hawthorne. We do talk about that, but in generally the Romans uh, about 2000 years ago started to see, we see evidence of them uh, domesticating them. Now, Angie, being a snowshoe hare is, is it's a quick life. <laughs> they, they, you know, they can live up to about five years in the wild, but the data shows about 85% of them do not live more than a year.
2: Right. Yeah, it's a tough life out there. It's
1: harsh. It's harsh. And, you know, they've got really good hearing. they yeah, reading about their vision, dichromatic. So they can see rabbits and hares can see about blue and green where we see red, blue, and green wavelengths. So th- they are adapted you know, again, with the hearing and the feeling with their feet and stuff, they can run. The snowshoe hare can run up to 27 miles per hour. Yeah, they're 40, fast. 43 kilometers per hour. Mm-hmm. Now, I did find a hare that is actually the, the 10th fastest animal in the world. Do you know which one it is?
2: Hmm. I will tell you, it's definitely not. The Flemish giant, that is a species (laughs) of rabbit that I I got to work with when I was at the zoo. (laughs) I got to work with domestic rabbits. And then, oh, yes, the Flemish giant is just an amazing giant. All right.
1: Well, okay, I did. I I skipped over it because I was like, oh, it's just an interest of time. I did put in the Flemish giant rabbit. (laughs) It's the biggest rabbit ever. (laughs)
2: They're so fun. They are huge. They're like 25 four pounds.
1: Mm-hmm. The, the the world record is
2: four feet three, weighed fifteen pounds. Okay, fifteen pounds. I don't know where I got twenty five from. I think I was thinking of a cocker span. Well,
1: but... I'm sure there's ones that are that are heavier. This was the longest one. I'm sure there's okay. ones heavier.
2: Yeah, they're so fun.
1: Okay. So the fastest is the brown hair at okay. forty five miles per hour, seventy seven wow. kilometers per hour. 10th fastest animal in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And the Arctic hare can actually run faster than the snowshoe. Arctic hares can run up to 40 miles per hour. So,
2: wow. And they can leap about 10 feet. I mean, right in a single bound. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, Chris, it's important too to mention that not only can the snowshoe hares run pretty fast and jump a lot in a single bound, but they also can change direction really fast and during Mm -hmm. these vertical leaps and then the predators don't know where that hair is going to land from one moment to the next
1: right right they're very agile very fast and then those snowshoes which again i'll remind everybody about five inches long 14 centimeters for a rabbit that's no more than 20 inches long so at least a quarter of its body length is is its feet and they can pretty much run on top of the snow with those snowshoes right
2: Yes. I mean, when we talk about cold weather adaptations, these guys evolved to do that, and that's where they got their name from, right? The snowshoe hare. These big, wide hind feet, long and wide hind feet are like snowshoes. They basically help them distribute their weight across the snow. Uh, Even though they are light in comparison, right, to to other, other mammals, still they theoretically should sink in the snow. uh, But these large snowshoe feet help them move across the snow quickly without sinking um, in the deeper snow. And the other cool fact about these large feet is they do grow thick winter fur on them and in between them. So they help act as an insulator as well um, as they're moving across the snow.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's just, <laughs> these, these animals are so amazing. I love them. I love them. Now just looking at diet real quick, it, very diverse, you know, different plants, woody vegetation, you know, in the summer and the spring, obviously the, the green is what they're eating, but in the winter, you know, a little tougher diet, twigs, you know, bark, some, some buds and stuff like that. Uh, and then I, I thought it was interesting. Did you read about the hairlines? Hare lines that during the winter, you know they they, they're browsing so heavily in this vegetation that they they have these like well defined browse lines that you can kind of track them.
2: Yeah, they're like little uh, roads, basically. Yeah, Uh, Yeah. mm -hmm. Yeah. or or trampled down pathways. Uh, Yeah, they most of the snowshoes activity and or grazing uh, is going to occur along these well trampled down uh, pathways through the vegetation mm-hmm. and the hairs know them really well and yeah, zip yeah, in the, and out of them
1: the little hairlines and then mm-hmm. i did read they they do like to eat their feces <laughs> you know because they they can get more nutrients that they missed
2: Yeah, it's really, really important. And anybody who's ever taken care of domestic rabbits knows that, uh, you don't want to keep a rabbit in an enclosure where all of the feces will fall to the ground or fall away from them. Um, of course you would need to clean the enclosure daily, but, uh, they need to have access to some of their feces at all times because a lot of the snowshoes, hares, digestion of their food occurs in their hindguts, um. They need to extract all the nutrients possible by re-ingesting their feces and having it go through their digestive system a second time to get certain important nutrients.
1: Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a good note. That's a good note. Now, it, we already talked about how agile they are, how fast they are, you know, can Canadian lynx. How adorable they are. <laughs> I know, I know. But you've got coyotes, wolves, bobcats, mink, uh, other foxes, red foxes, gray foxes. Owls, raptors, sometimes will 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 pick them off, and you know the young snowshoe hares tend to just freeze mm-hmm. in place yep, that's because therapy. they're mm-hmm. yeah they're camouflaged and it works pretty well you know that's why they that that white coloration is so important to them. But what other behaviors do they exhibit that we we haven't talked about yet?
2: Well, Chris, I think it's really important to note that the snowshoe hare does not hibernate. You would maybe think that because it lives in this cold weather climate in the Northern Hemisphere that maybe it would just hunker down in the winter uh, like bears do or other species that we've covered on this podcast, but they don't. Uh, In general, snowshoe hares are going to be crepuscular, so active at dusk and dawn to nocturnal. And they really are shy and secretive. So, that's probably why my husband hasn't seen any in New England. They're not trying to be seen, right? They want to blend in and just stay away from predators. So they're going to spend a lot of time during the day hidden either in thick brush or ferns or maybe like a hollowed out tree log, things like that. So they're going to stay out of the way during during the day and they're not going to be super active until uh, it's starting. the sun's starting to go down. Snowshoe hares do spend a lot of time grooming, so they will often be cleaning those giant feet, like the picture that I opened up with where you can just see them grooming in between their toes, which their their hind feet are giant, so it takes a long time to groom in between those toes, Uh, and of course, they got to keep that beautiful uh, coat, whether it's brown in the summertime or white in the wintertime, looking good. Uh, they also do like to rest during the day uh, and take dust baths. So by taking a dust bath, uh, I would imagine, especially in the summer when there's more dirt around, that's easy to access. It helps them remove parasites from their fur. So it's an important part of, of just their daily grooming and maintenance. Uh, and I thought this was super fascinating, Chris. Snowshoe hares are great swimmers. It's been documented that they can swim across small lakes and rivers um, in order to avoid predators. Oh, okay. Yeah, Those big right. hind feet. <laughs> <The> <laughs> right? yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you touched on it a little bit earlier in the podcast, but uh snowshoe hares are pretty solitary, uh, unless it's um during breeding season. But they will live in high densities together per square kilometer, but they're not actually socializing and living together. They're just tolerating each other um, in their territory, or they have basically have overlapping home ranges. Now, for any of you that have worked with rabbits or hares, you know that they're not really a v- super vocal animal, right? Like right now with my nine month old, I'm like, what sound does a cow make? Moo. What sound does a chicken make? Cluck, cluck, cluck. Of course we do horses and sheeps and all the farm animals. <laughs> tiger. But- do you do the tiger? Oh, job. we do tigers. We do hippos. <laughs> yeah, we do them all. Love it, um, love it. But there's really not like, oh, what does a rabbit say? Or what does a hare say? Right? Because yeah. they're, they're pretty quiet animals. However, if you've worked with them, you do know that they will make uh, squealing sounds when they 're grabbed up and they don 't want to be captured, uh, they can be really vocal they 'll also make a hiss and a snort noise sometimes but overall pretty quiet animal right once again, shy and secretive they don 't really they don 't really want to be found out about so that 's not how they 're going to they 're not going to attract a mate by making loud vocalizations because they also don 't want to attract all those predators but probably one of the most well studied ways that snowshoe hares communicate. Uh, is through thumping their hind feet against the ground.
1: I read that. Yeah. yeah. Thumper. I was thinking of Thumper mm-hmm. from Bambi. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Exactly. So uh, that is definitely a behavior they will engage in.
1: Now, we know rabbits and hares are known for the repro because, you know, breed like a rabbit. They have very quick. I've read some very surprising facts about them. So talk about reproductive strategies and and how they make that happen.
2: Oh yeah, Chris. As a reproductive physiologist in my previous life, I I just love talking about rabbit uh, reproductive phy- physiology. It's super fun. As you mentioned, uh, snowshoe hares are going to be polygonandrous, which means both males and females will have multiple mates per breeding season. And depending on where the snowshoe hare is living in their range, whether it's in Appalachia or in northern Michigan or Alaska. Breeding season is going to run in general from mid-March through August. And similar to many herbivores we've covered on this podcast, the growth of new vegetation in the spring, so more food, green food, uh, more availability of it, is going to help trigger the seasonal breeding And when a female snowshoe hair does come into estrus, males are going to typically congregate around her and follow her around. So they're pretty obvious about it. And if there's several males interested into a female, they are going to showcase their talents and compete for the female's affection by drumming the ground with their hind feet, jumping into the air, And sometimes even fighting or battling one another uh, to win her affection. And when a male does win the affection of a female, breeding is going to occur quickly and then both male and female will go their separate ways. And a male will hop along to find another female to breed uh, as soon as possible. And the female's gestation is going going to last about 36 days And right before she gives birth, uh, female hairs in general become really aggressive and intolerant of males. She's like, do not chase me around. I do. Don't come court me. I don't want to see your thumping. I don't want to see your jumping. I don't want to see your battles. So she is set to give birth and wants nothing to do with males, which I think, I (laughs) think it's kind of hilarious. Yeah. Just like (laughs) you're no, you're no help. I mean, at least John was feeding me ice chips for goodness sakes. I was just like more, more ice chips, please. And when it is time to give birth, the female snowshoe hare, will find an area of nice packed down grasses, right? Because it's spring or summertime and she'll give birth up to anywhere from one to eight uh, leverets, they are called. And as Chris mentioned earlier in the podcast, these leverets or young uh, snowshoe hares are going to be born ready to go. They're precocial. They have all their fur. They're able to run. Their eyes are open. It's like go time. But these young leverets are pretty independent. Uh, In fact, within 24 hours, they are ready to start hopping around a little bit from the area where they were born. And what the young siblings will do is they'll hide in different locations during the day. And then they only come together a few times a day for five to 10 minutes to nurse from uh, from their mom. And then they'll go hide and go off to their little separate locations. So the female does do a lot of caring for them when she is nursing them and keeping an eye on them, but they're basically on their own after four weeks. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. they're weaned after four weeks, they have to go figure out life. And that's probably why that mortality rate is, is pretty high. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But a female uh, does experience polyesteros, so she can have several uh, cycles throughout the season. And she may have up to four litters a year, depending on the availability of food, what Mm -hmm. the environmental conditions are. And some studies out of Newfoundland and Alberta have shown that the amount of litters per year that a snowshoe hare, that a female snowshoe hare rabbit can have depends, of course, on food, but then also these population cycles, these density cycles that Chris Mm -hmm. and I talked about earlier on in the podcast. So, uh, it really is all interconnected and both male and female snowshoe hares will, uh, reach sexual maturity within a year. But Chris, I have to, I have to back up the bus a little bit and Mm -hmm, talk mm -hmm. about this really fun fact about female rabbits and hares in general. Mm -hmm. So, Because they can have multiple litters per season, a female snowshoe hare is pregnant with a litter, right? Mm -hmm. And in general, her gestation period is 36 days. Well, she can actually conceive her second litter, assuming she's going to have one, while she is still pregnant with the first.
1: It's insane. It's so okay.
2: nuts. This is why rabbits are so crazy
1: and hares are so mm-hmm. crazy.
2: Mm-hmm. And she can conceive anytime as long as it's somewhere within the 36 days of gestation before that first litter is born. She can be rocking out the second one. And when you understand the rabbit anatomy, it makes a little bit more sense about how she can do this. Because when you look at the anatomy of a rabbit or a hare, They actually have two separate uterine horns, for lack of better terms. Um, Not necessarily a body, but a horn where the embryos can develop. And having two uterine horns is not unheard of in the animal kingdom. In fact, uh, mares, horses, female horses that Chris and I studied very intimately for years and I'm still working on, they have two uterine horns, one on each side. But the difference is horses only have one cervix and of course one vagina, whereas rabbits have two cervix. Therefore, if you can visualize it, which I'm such a visual person, but so the female snowshoe hare can be pregnant with her first litter of the year on, let's say, her left uterine horn. And inside that uterus, uterine horn, the embryos, whether she has two or six of them, are all developing happily. And then comes around another male that's thumping and leaping in the air and fighting off other males, and she finds them very attractive. He can impregnate her by having his swimmers or the sperm travel through the other cervix into the right uterine horn and those leverets can start developing. Awesome.
1: I just imagine her nutritionally trying to support that, but I guess these cycles when, you know, the plants are abundant, they can breathe like crazy and keep, you know, kicking them out. It's yeah, it's insane. keep those
2: separate uterine horns and separate cervic, cervic, cervixes, <laughs> cervix doing their separate things. And oh, a, nice. as you mentioned, it is very, very much uh, uh, related to the nutritional status um, and these density cycles as far as how many litters they're going to have. And usually it is only two to three. So she she's not always Having basically two different pregnancies at the same time, but it can happen when she, when she has the right nutrition and um, and the males are thumping away and looking good, it can happen, and so just super fascinating. And we've all grown up being told that yes, like rabbits are amazing breeders and breed like rabbits, and and yes, snowshoe hares and other rabbits and hares have the the, the anatomical features to do that and support. This um, uh, population increase potentially, but that's not really what we're seeing. And like I said earlier in the opening of the podcast, when I was reading that over half of the world's rabbits are endangered or on their way to being endangered or critically endangered, it was just very mind-blowing. And, you know, I made me want to do a little bit deeper dive on some of these species like The um, amami rabbit, which is found in Japan, is endangered. The European rabbit is endangered. The uh, riverine rabbit out of South Africa is critically endangered. And then, Chris, there's the hispid hare, also called the assam rabbit or the bristly rabbit, which is native to uh, the southern foothills of the Himalayas in South Asia, which was thought to be extinct. Uh, Back in like 1984. But recently, there have been some spottings of the Hispid hare, and it's basically sparked conservationists and animal enthusiasts in that region to work hard with governments and international organizations to try to save this species and bring it back from what they thought was extinction, but uh, the brink of extinction. But there is hope now that in some of these national parks in Nepal and other regions of the Himalayas that the Hispid hare is not extinct and uh, we can hopefully help save it.
1: Yeah, no, I th- there are, and Mark and I touch upon some other species too that are endangered and some of the conservation work going on. So just because they can reproduce quickly doesn't mean a lot of these species aren't in trouble.
2: Right. I mean, that's the thing when we, when we look at the list that, that big that I read um, and mm. I'm not even touching on all of them. Um, it does have to show that we, we can't take our rabbit and hares for granted that no. they, they do, they do need our help. And yeah, you know, they do experience a lot of threats uh, such as habitat loss and um, urbanization. And of course with a snowshoe hare, it's going to be climate change. That's probably its biggest yeah. threat.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it's least concern now, but like like Angie just said, climate change. So, things you can do, things we've talked about. You know, one of the things I, I always do when I wash my clothes, I put the the cyclone cold because always get just all, just as clean. Just look at ways of reducing energy use, and then entering the holiday season. If you're buying gifts. When I'm out shopping now, I'm looking at packaging. I'm like, I don't need all this packaging for this, you know. When I'm buying presents and things for the kids, so I'm 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 a little bit conscious on on what I'm buying uh, out there because you know, especially a lot of plastics and stuff. But just remember, you know, do your part. The thousands of listeners that we have, the podcast, doing their part, but you know as a as a planet i think we're 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 starting change now but we we need to keep doing it and and speed it up a little bit now any organizations out there helping these these endangered rabbits and hares
2: well chris i didn't find a specific organization for the hispid hare uh, but what i do want to feature this week is one of my favorite conservation organizations that helps educate children specifically about the plight of the hispid hare and then several other endangered and critically endangered species, and this is the Kratz Brothers. So I'm sure <laughs> yes. uh, you yep. guys are very yep. familiar with Wild Kratz. For those of you not in uh, North America, Wild Kratz is a cartoon about zoal brothers that are zoologists and their team of scientists friends that go on all these wacky wildlife adventures and uh, they learn all about uh, endangered species and just everything nature related. It's just an awesome, awesome cartoon. And then they, they also have like a a segment at the beginning and the end where um, the Kratt brothers, um, Martin and Chris Kratt, are real life animal experts that have been working on animal conservation and animal education their entire lives. And so they always do a little clip where uh, they are talking about promoting wild spaces and wild places for wildlife to live. And it's just a great show. So that's with the crap brothers it's on PBS and our local stations here in the U S but it can also be found online at pbs.org but what, they, what these two brothers did is they created a foundation called the Creature Hero Foundation. So that's what I want to highlight today. It's CreatureHero.org, and they can be also found on all the social media platforms. And their mission is simple and powerful. Uh, it's basically to empower kids of all ages, so myself included, to be a Creature Hero and help wildlife. And the Creature Hero Foundation has several ways that a child can make a difference to help out wildlife uh, by protecting habitat, by working together, by taking actions, by learning. And there's several initiatives to become a Creature Hero and different things you can do within your own community without traveling to the southern Himalayas to save the hispid Hare or other regions that are obviously not reachable if you're a young child for the most part. And it's just really inspirational. And I just love that they, they have taken the very thoughtful uh, cartoon and informational edutainment cartoon to a whole nother level to give back to all these species that need us and to help save wild places and wild spaces. So uh, we'll put it on our show notes and I'm, I'm going to try to get uh, Chris and Martin on our podcast. Uh, I would say for my children, but really, it's honestly for me because uh, <laughs> me the whole reason I knew about the hispid hair, uh, is because I watched an episode last week with my boys. Uh, yeah. and, and it was fascinating. I mean, I, I just sat there and watched the whole thing and I learned all about the hispid hair and they had the snowshoe mm-hmm. hair on there. Mm-hmm. And yes, some of the facts may have come that I talked about today may have come <laughs> from, from uh, the wildcats episode. Yeah. Of course, uh, you know, I fact checked and did all that other stuff, but just really inspirational. And we know this younger generation has to be the one that helps helps us get out of this mess. And so we need to inspire um, the the youth to take more action to help save the planet and save the species that inhabit it. I know Chris and I are doing their part and uh, so are these creature heroes, the crap brothers. And so check out creaturehero.org. I can't say enough good things about them. Uh, follow the crap brothers on social media. And mostly I just want to give them a big shout out for uh, taking their their platform and their popularity uh, onto a whole nother conservation level.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, you know, for the listeners, you're heroes too. We see you sharing our episodes, talking about these animals, the facts you've learned. Many of you work with animals too, either volunteering or, you know, working at zoos and, and wildlife parks and aquariums. So thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. I love this animal. I, every week I love the animals we do, but this one was was especially sweet and, and exciting. But yeah, stay tuned next week for another species.
2: Thank you, everyone. We really appreciate it. Keep those email requests coming um, and join us on social media so you can get more involved in our discussions.
1: Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.